This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm glad you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Joseph Bros, the Vice President for Quantum Growth and Market Development at IBM. Welcome, Joe. I'm delighted you're joining me today. Hello, Chris. I'm just glad to be here. So, Joe, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. My objective is certainly to give our audience a sense of what you did before you joined IBM, but also as a way to orient listeners to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So can you tell me a bit about where you grew up and where you went to school, maybe various organizations where you worked before joining IBM? Well, sure, I'm delighted to. And and thanks again for inviting me onto the program. And um, I guess, you know, everyone comes to quantum through different routes. There are uh, probably as, as many routes as there are uh, people involved in the uh, in the field today. Um, and, uh, I, slowly there's becoming a traditional route that's being established through, uh, formal training in quantum information sciences. But for those of us of a certain age, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> we, we, we probably did something else in our career prior to getting involved in quantum information science. Uh, for me, it was condensed matter physics. I uh, went to MIT in physics for my undergraduate and then the ETH in Zurich in condensed matter theory and studied under Walter Baltensperger and uh, Morris Rice in condensed matter theory. Then well, in my, my career trajectory really was uh, an odd one. I was doing a postdoc uh, at uh, UC San Diego under Harry Sewell. Uh, Harry had written uh, some really great Rado and Sewell, the kind of the definitive volumes on on magnetism. And uh, I received a reply to a letter that I had sent some months before, having forgotten that I had sent it off to uh, Alan Bromley, who was at Yale. And uh, he had been named the presidential science advisor to George Bush, uh, 41. And Alan replied to my letter um, and he said, you know, I'd be interested in someone with your background. Apply to become a White House fellow. And if you get it, I, I'll, I'll hire you. Well, wow. anyway, I, I applied. I got it. And he hired me. So uh, I left my uh, postdoctoral work. And um, uh, I like to joke and say I did my postdoc at the White House, which <laughs> really is true. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Then after that, then what happened? Well, I went um, uh, from there um, to uh, Houston. I joined a company that was really undergoing a lot of change at the time called Teneco. Uh, Teneco had at that time about 16 operating divisions, which are household names like Case Equipment and International Harvester and uh, uh, Albright and Wilson Chemicals and Newport News Shipbuilding. There were 16 large groups and uh, they had oil and gas and uh, they were vertically integrated in the energy space. 
Um, I joined a group there uh, and ran their laboratories. So I kind of worked up through the ranks of industry and industrial labs to uh, eventually uh, land at uh, a company called Titanium Metals Corporation. Got very interested in the uh, uh, condensed matter and the theory of metals, metal corrosion, um, um, all of the quantum phenomenon around and had, uh, as director of laboratory, had a number of uh, teams that were working on these issues. And uh, that's where my interest in really understanding quantum phenomenon and how they play a role and how to describe those. So with density functional theory, um, had it was, was really kind of the hot thing at that time. And Quantum information theory was just a glimmer, but that's where I was initially attracted to it. Uh, fast forwarding, I went to SRI International, which is the you know former Stanford Research Institute, and um, eventually uh, starting there as a director and worked up to vice president and head of applied sciences at SRI. So that was my trajectory. Wow. But then, so tell us about QEDC. So you... Right, You're a seminal player in that uh, organization, of course, executive director. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Um, QEDC was a great opportunity while I was at SRI. Uh, our then uh, CEO, Bill Jeffrey, provided a great opportunity for me to uh, help steer the development of the QEDC. So I began working with Carl Williams and a number of people at NIST to really establish and create the QEDC. With that opportunity, uh, we founded the QEDC. There was funding provided. Uh, we, owe, we all in this, in this business owe a huge debt of gratitude to the visionaries who put together the NQI legislation. It was passed into law in uh, 2018, and that provided formal funding uh, for the QEDC. And uh, we built it over the course of three years. Um, I was still at SRI this whole time. SRI had the contract to do this. And we really gathered, it was a, it, it's just a wonderful industry. Um, it's, a, it's a healthy community. It's very collaborative. And uh, the QEDC was an absolute delight to help Carl put that together, Jake Taylor. There were a number of people in then and in, in the White House and the OSTP. Um, and to really, you know, put, put that together with all the members of industry. So we gathered um, all of the usual suspects in the uh, quantum industry uh, as, it, as it sits today. And we had tremendous support from Google and um, from uh, IBM, of course, um, Rigetti and IonQ and, uh, you know, PsyQuantum and Vector Atomic and uh, the uh, uh, AOSense, ColdQuanta, on and on and on. Zapata, large number of, of organizations that helped in the governing board. Uh, QCWare was a phenomenal contributor. And Matt Johnson and his team were very supportive. So, it was uh, it was one of those it takes a village, and uh, we built the QEDC, which is now in the very capable hands of Celia Mertzbacher and uh, her team. And um, I 
at the end of my three-year term, uh, came to IBM. Yeah. So, Jill, thank you for sharing that fascinating background with our listeners. Really, really interesting trajectory so far. So, segue, um, please share some detail about what your current role is at IBM. So, what, what are you doing there now? So, my particular responsibilities are to drive quantum market adoption and growth. Uh, and that would be both in the public and in the in the private sectors. When uh, I first came to IBM, just a little over a year ago from the QEDC, the first thing that uh, we worked on here was uh, an offering called Quantum Accelerator, which is really designed to help companies anywhere along the spectrum of quantum maturity graduate into their quantum journey. And we took a look at what are the basic elements that a company needs along the way. Uh, They need workforce. They need to understand their workflow. They need to have a roadmap and where quantum could help add value to their business. So we took all of those kinds of elements of uh, an ecosystem that's required and and put it together in an offering and launched it. And it was uh, extremely successful and continues to be. So that was my first assignment here at IBM. And I'm now focused on large strategic deployments. That is uh, placing either large hubs or large on-premise systems in strategic locations with strategic partnerships uh, uh, around the globe. That's a big job, but very exciting. Uh, And the fact that IBM has been a leader in the quantum computing space for many years, right, gives you a unique perspective, I'd say. Can you share just a little bit more detail about, say, the current work going on in quantum at IBM? You know, big picture related to the company, maybe how long it's been in the quantum business, who's on the team? Sure. Yeah, you know, well, IBM was really my dream job. It was really my choice of where I wanted to go, and I'm very fortunate to to be at IBM. Um They've been pursuing quantum technology for quite some time. I mean, since the 80s, uh, there were many pioneers that were here or are here at IBM, uh, even from that era, like, you know, Charlie Bennett, the quantum comms people know, you know, BB84. There were a lot of very, you know, fundamental pioneers in quantum information science already at IBM. And then along the line, IBM decided to uh, select a a qubit modality of choice, which were superconducting qubits. And uh, in the 2010s, there was then this like burst of growth for the program, which occurred under Jay Gambetta's leadership, uh, Dario Gill's leadership, Scott Crowder. Um, uh, Jerry Chow joined. There were uh, there was a large contingent of people I think that came over from uh, the labs at in Yale. And uh, anyway, I'm really privileged to work with that world class people that are you know truly founders of of the field. And um, IBM has a really uh, I think unique and very disciplined yet highly creative approach to developing quantum, quantum hardware and software. Yeah. So can you describe the IBM quantum offering? I know the Eagle chip was recently announced, right? 
Right. But what exactly is the company providing to clients? Give, give our listeners some detail around the, the portfolio, sure. if you will. Well, you know, the first thing would be access, of course. Uh, you can access um, uh, our systems through the cloud. You can do that as a, a hub and a partnership. You can do that as a uh, now uh, with uh, announced pay as you go. Uh, there are a, a whole host of, of ways to engage in the access uh, to our to our systems. And clearly that's something, you know, IBM pioneered and was on the cloud with quantum way back in 2016. So access is probably the first element. Um, this, this, the second, I think very differentiating and unique element about IBM quantum is that they, they set forth a roadmap on these offerings as as we progress back in 2019 <clears throat> they established a a very defined roadmap that uh how IBM Quantum would progress from a 5 qubit system to 27 to 127 qubit system now this year to 433 qubit system later on and then to a thousand in uh, 2023-24. So they set this roadmap up that IBM has hit every single milestone on or ahead of time all along the way. And, and coming from heavy industry, my background in Teneco and Timet, um, it was a real, for me, a very business-like way to run things because coming from industry, it provided a roadmap that industry can count on. Government and industry can absolutely count on IBM delivering what it says it's going to deliver when it says it's going to deliver it. So the hardware, everything that's in the stack in terms of our Kiskit runtime, the primitives that we're now beginning to announce in terms of how to make this very seamless, how to make this uh, more uh, of increasing utility to algorithm designers. Uh, so the hardware features, the software, the libraries, the applications are all on that roadmap. And businesses and government can count on IBM delivering it along that roadmap and what those milestones are. I, I like to describe it as it's a roadmap where no material, no, no miracles are required, just a lot of hard work. Yeah. And um, it's a very well laid out pedagogical plan. We monitor it, we measure it, we focus on it, and it really orients everything we do around here on our team. So Jill, can people find that road? I've seen it actually, you know, at, at an event, but it's, it is fantastic. And I guess the implication certainly is that that then lets clients manage their strategic business objectives more accurately or proactively, right? Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, look, the, the quantum journey is already sufficiently complex for any company or government organization jumping onto the, uh, the quantum track. Um, there's, there's no reason to enhance that complexity or the risks due to programmatic uncertainties that are manageable. So IBM has always taken this view that 
let's deliver on these promises. Let's manage the programmatics so that we can just focus on how do we take these uh, assets, these workflows, these applications and use cases and make them a reality. And that's just been incredibly productive for the company and the clients. I mean, most importantly for our clients. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the layers. I mean, we should, we should talk about Kiskit, right? Can you share just some insight? That's, you know, one of the most utilized and ubiquitous quantum software solutions on the planet. Yeah, a lot of users. I mean, I think uh, we're right now, we have a, a little over 400,000 regular users uh, using Kiskit and have trained over a million have have learned some uh, or you know or a great deal of of Kiskit globally it is yeah, that's very yeah it's really a that's a big number <laughs> big numbers yeah, yeah that was it, great. It, and it's becoming better every single day so there's a whole software team as you look at this roadmap it, it's really built like a like the quantum stack at, at, at the bottom you know going left to right is time and at the bottom is the hardware right? Are the qubits. And that's where a lot of the popular press focuses naturally. But there, there are a number of metrics we use there. We introduced quantum volume. Of course, there's qubit number, but we introduced quantum volume. Another really important uh, metric along that hardware axis are CLOPs, you know, circuit layer operations per second, equivalent to flops in the classical world, which gives indication of gate speed and therefore programs can be run how many gates. And then of course, coherence time, which is, continues to increase and is expressed uh, indirectly, but through quantum volume. So there are a number of progression metrics along that bottom layer of the roadmap. Then, then the next layer up, you asked about Kiskit. Well, the next layer up really is about the kernels, the, the software that is kind of embedded and is classical software, but drives the qubits. There's a lot of art in that and, and, and science in terms of making that efficient. You have uh, issues of error correction. We call it error mitigation because we're as as we go along, we're finding techniques and creating tools to mitigate error on a spectrum rather than just waiting for total fault tolerant error correction. We see that we are able to mitigate it along the way. So that's that's kind of the next layer. The layer above that, I might yeah. just quickly Please. add. The layer above that would be then where you you would get into the. Um, the application, the algorithm, and then the model modeling layers, where that's the real interface uh, between, you know, programmers and users in the machine. Most people now are are you know focused on kind of those upper parts of the stack, and the algorithms and the applications, the use cases, and and don't have to dive all the way down into programming pulses, right? So. Our objective is to make this software highly ubiquitous, very open source, very uh, amenable to a a large number of systems and very user-friendly with a lot of features so that it becomes seamless 
our vision being someday, people will program in Kiskit, submit the job, and frankly, they won't know what parts of that are going to a quantum processor and what parts of that might be going to a classical processor because they, they don't have to direct it and they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, fantastic. So let's follow on the thread and maybe drill down into um, more specifics about the portfolio as well as your approach for go-to-market and your perspective on what the addressable opportunity might be, both near-term and you know longer-term. On our portfolio and, and our go-to-market principle is really founded upon one thing and one thing only, and that is client value. Uh, everything has to find its expression in client value somewhere. And if we keep that in mind, it, it helps uh, focus us on this roadmap. We're bringing increasingly capable machines online. Uh, we're bringing offerings out that allow organizations of varying levels of maturity to have an on-ramp uh, into the quanta, into their quantum journey that is productive, that will provide value as, uh, as early as possible, bring that rate of return to the client. Some of our, you know, some clients come to us with a fully functioning quantum team already. They'll come to us and they'll have a team of three or five or 10 people, or sometimes even more. And um, some companies have come to us with uh, the basic question, how do I get started, right? So what we've spent a lot of time doing in our quantum accelerator offering and in our go-to-market is how do we provide for that particular client with their workflow in that industry how do we identify the value? How do we get that value and extract it for them? We help them analyze their workflow. We help them identify the pain points, identify where quantum is going to help resolve those pain points, uh, where might it be applicable. And then once that is identified, what are the algorithms, the use cases, what workforce are, are they going to need to reasonably approach this and help them create a roadmap, you know, not dissimilar to the one we follow, that has a very pedagogical, very programmatic, measured, uh, uh, measurable set of progress markers so they know where they are on that and where they can expect to start to uh, gain value from having made an investment in quantum. So th that's, a, that's really our, uh, our approach in a nutshell. As I said, when I started out here on the description, it's first and foremost uh, all based upon pro providing quantum client value. Thank you for sharing that perspective and certainly makes sense. So needless to say, we have many listeners tuning into the podcast who are very you know, technology savvy and interested in sort of more granular detail so could you share a little bit, uh, you know, maybe down in the weeds, or we should say speeds and feeds around the company solution from a technical standpoint? Sure. Well, and, and uh, again, my, my focus primarily at, at IBM Quantum is really on the markets and the adoption yeah. 
and uh, in, in, in that side of it, not in the hardware, but I have some familiarity with it. it of course, it's, it's led by Jay and Jerry Chow and a, a large number of uh, super talented people that are, you know, the, the uh, leading lights uh, in, in much of superconducting quantum computing and qubits. Uh, but let me, uh, let me kind of give a, a sketch of, of what is important in the client value equation and in, in, in market development. Um, yeah. first, first, I think clients are going to see that the IBM approach, number one, along the roadmap, while we follow that roadmap, there, it is somewhat a nonlinear uh, path in this regard. Um, they'll see, for example, that we will create sort of a leapfrogging approach. We'll will, for example, announce quantum circuit that has 127 qubits, a quantum chip with uh, 127 qubits and a certain quantum volume. Uh, and, and, and then once we've, we've got that set down, then what we'll do is work on the quantum volume. Now, just recently, we announced a quantum volume of uh, 256 for our 127 qubit chip. And I had, you know, a number of clients and, and others asked me, well, you know, what's this about? You, you announced a, a chip with a lot more um, qubits in it, but the quantum volume hasn't changed. Well, yeah, they were right, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an asynchronous method. And, that, yeah. and then what we'll work on is uh, after that, we'll work on, say, clops. And sometimes we work on these and attack them in parallel, others in sequence. Um, the uh, objective being that what we want to do is experiment with trade-offs to maximize that performance. You know, we want to test new components. We want to work on um, our, our surface architecture uh, so sometimes it might appear from the outside that uh, things are uh, a, a little bit nonlinear, but if you stand back at it and kind of on the year-long time frame and time scale, you, you see the progression along along the roadmap. So that that's one of the first things that I, I think that touches what what I do in terms of adoption bringing client value is to explain that um, people who are uh, subscribed to our quantum network through hubs and our strategic partners uh, have access to the latest and we introduce it as we have it. And we are very confident that these uh, exploratory systems are, are now core systems and we can introduce them to our, our user community. So that's one of the first things Another thing I could mention would be error mitigation. We've published a lot of experimental de demonstrations on our heavy hexagon or heavy hex topology. This is uh, kind of an arrangement of lattice connectivity that really we think will mitigate like crosstalk and uh, fixed frequency qubits. And we're putting a lot of stock into that because we think that that will mitigate the current level of hardware noise. And it really places us on a very favorable path for a scalable, increasingly error mitigated to fault tolerant quantum error correction. So uh, there's a great, by the way, on the May 2nd, uh, 2022 
Scientific American, uh, Zyred Nazario has published a really good article and outline on our error mitigation and error correction uh, efforts. And uh, that's really a good read for listeners who might want to have a kind of a general overview. Scientific American, May 2nd, 2022 edition. Great. No, thanks for mentioning that. Terrific. Yeah. Listeners, please take a note. Jill, I want to shift gears for a moment. Talk about workforce. Workforce is a personal passion of mine. Um, I'm involved in the QEDC workforce TAC. And um, as if I wanted to get your take, as the field of quantum grows, there are certainly challenges when finding talented people to work in these areas. You know, people have said there's a fairly small number of PhDs in physics that are ready to move into industry. But wanting to ask, what's IBM's strategy for finding talent and building the quantum-ready workforce? Yeah, we we have a very, very robust strategy. Um, and it led under the very capable leadership of, of Jay and his team, Liz Durst. Um, just terrific. Our outreach and the number of uh, hits we get on, you know, platforms like YouTube in terms of of training and uh, through our uh, private digital offerings are just, it's just astounding. Um, We have really world-class quantum computing educational materials that are available to the public. And and then we have uh, other more proprietary training materials for our clients, customers. In it, it's, it's a huge component in our quantum accelerator offering, which I mentioned before. Technical training to upskill and reskill a given company or industry's workforce. And I mentioned some of the, the numbers uh, of people that are using Kiskit and, uh, you know, the number of people that have trained. There are a large number of people that are, are certified. So at that level, we have a lot of materials that are very scalable that people can learn Kiskit, learn the fundamentals of our programming, our runtime, the primitives associated with it, how to um, really get the most out of IBM's quantum software. However, that doesn't provide the people, right? That provides the tools and resources, but the industry still has a shortage in workforce. Addressing that, you you you're quite right, Chris. At the beginning, when you mentioned the you know the the shortage, just just some round numbers, and uh, hopefully listeners will forgive me if my numbers are off a bit here, but I think they're they're pretty accurate. There are um, about uh, two thousand PhDs, you know, more or less, in physics graduated in the U.S. annually. Of that, uh, something uh, like 50% foreign nationals that will, you know, uh, not remain expatriates. They'll they'll repatriate back to their home nations, leaving, say, a thousand. Um, Then um, about half of those are in fields that are distant or remote from quantum information science, so that you can say... They're in astronomy or astrophysics or something, which, yeah, while touches this, is not at the heart of information 
science, quantum information science uh, necessarily, although there are aspects that do bleed into it, maybe separate those people away, leaving 500. A small group. A small group in a relevant field. And, and, and then, you know, you say, well, of, of that group, how many might want to go into industry or actually embrace this as opposed to academia? Cut it in half again. So, so now you're dealing with like 250 uh, PhDs in physics that might be candidates in, in this area. Then, of course, you have all of Wall Street and its allure for the quants and everybody else that wants to pick this off. So now we're probably down to something like a uh, 100 candidates. And the last time I looked at the uh, Help Wanted ads in the excellent Oak Ridge uh, ORNL uh, newsletter that comes out, Every couple of weeks, they have a listing of all open quantum positions. There were 1,300 positions uh, in quantum information science. These were technical positions listed. Oh, my. So you can see we're really off by maybe more than an order of magnitude, maybe, you know, uh, getting there. And those were just the advertised positions. For every one that's there, there's going to be several that, you know, maybe 10 that are going unfilled somewhere. Yeah. Challenging. Yeah. So Joe, I'd like to conclude by posing what I cast as the crystal ball question. So wondering, you know, based on where you sit, the view you have, your extensive background in the space, where do you think we'll be in three to five to 10 years? Uh, not alone what the impact of quantum might be on how we work and live, but IBM's role in that transformation. Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Uh, it's one that's asked uh, often, and um, I- I'll take a probably a little different tack, Chris, in, in responding to that. I'd I like to start with this uh, apocryphal quote from William Gibson, who's, who, who allegedly said, the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Uh, I, I don't know if he denied saying that at one point or not, but uh, anyway, it, it is apocryphal and uh, it's a good quote. Yes. Um, I think at IBM, we have pretty good sight lines into uh, the future of quantum because we are so darn close to it and we are forming it. We're really helping with all the colleagues in the quantum industry form that future and uh, it, it's, a, it's a healthy industry. It's a good industry. It's got a lot of great people in it. Uh, internationally, it, it's really a, a terrific uh, uh, group. So where is that group going to head? Um, and, and your question. Well, for me, it's easier to identify what could impact whatever timeline we're on and whenever that quantum future, quote, arrives. Uh, what could significantly impact that timeline? And it, it seems to me to be a little bit easier to identify maybe not the timeline itself, but what could impact that timeline given that we're on one. I think I can identify three things that would really impact that timeline. One of the things that uh, uh, when, when I look at those three things, I think it's really important that the community continue to embrace the risks as well as the sure things as we progress on this timeline. All right. 
it's really important to embrace both aspects. And also, I'm, I'm so happy when I see all of my colleagues in the quantum industry giving back to an industry that's been really good to all of us. And uh, that's, that's a hallmark of the quantum industry that is so admirable. But um, let me list the three things that I think uh, could really impact the timeline. Uh, first would be demonstration of quantum advantage in a practical problem. Yes, for sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, when, when somebody uh, really lays out a, a very clear uh, practical problem with the same sort of impact that uh, Google had in 2019 with uh, its announcement that I, I think that will uh, definitely be an accelerator of whatever timeline we're currently on. Um, the second I item would be continued improvements in error mitigation and error correction. I think that, you know, we, we have these experiments that have shown we can uh, extrapolate to the zero noise limit through rescaling. We have a couple of different approaches. Uh, we have certainly a hardware design that is an excellent approach. Um, I think continued improvements in error mitigation and some sudden jump in that will be impacting on our timeline. And I think uh, the third is really one that is uh, the union of quantum with high-performance computing. Yes, for sure. I think if, if we can continue to facilitate that, that intricate choreography between classical HPC machines and quantum processors, uh, that's certainly something IBM is working on, making that runtime seamless, uh, making that extremely efficient, that we're going to find with techniques like quantum embedding uh, used in uh, quantum chemistry, uh, circuit knitting, some really clever techniques which help manage the amount of the number of resources, the amount of resources required. I think that uh, that is also going to speed the time to value on, on our timeline. Uh, and, and, and I really look uh, to the new applications probably being in an area that uses hybrid or um, maybe even that practical problem where quantum advantage is uh, demonstrated uh, could in fact be something along the line of quantum embedding or utilizing um, some really efficient techniques for reducing the, the number of resources and, uh, again, providing that value. So those are three things I see as impacting our timeline. And uh, I, I think that we will see all three of those probably um, in, in the next, uh, you know, three to five years. I, I really do. I feel very confident that uh, we will see tremendous advances here in the next period of time. Yeah, so these are exciting times. Joe, we've come to the end of our session. I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight and perspective with me and with all of our listeners. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Chris, and uh, th thank you for uh, great questions and the opportunity to be here and uh, uh, talk to all of the uh, folks that are listening here and uh, thank them for their time. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. 
There's also a LinkedIn group, Quantum Computing IBM, that people should uh, join. The website, ibm.com slash quantum-computing, has tremendous resources. Again, want our listeners to check that out. Uh, there's a Twitter handle, at Kiskit, that people could follow. There are many great videos on YouTube, as you had mentioned. And IBM Quantum is even on Instagram. So stay connected to the great work that Joe and team are doing at IBM. And Twitter and our blogs. Yeah, we have a great group that tries to really get the information out there. We're all about being open and transparent with uh, all of the appropriate things so that people can find value in this, you know, very rapidly. I want to thank Joe again for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Joe. A reminder that uh, Joe Bros will be delivering a keynote address at our next Inside Quantum Technology event taking place in San Diego, May 10th through 12th. It's also available as uh, a hybrid, so you could live stream it if you can't make it to Southern California. You can learn more and register at iqtevent.com slash San Diego. Please listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.